welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. So the United States has the best healthcare in the world, right? Wrong. It's dead wrong. We have seen the devastation of the COVID pandemic in the U.S. Over 1.1 million Americans have died so far of COVID. Our death rates are three times higher than Canada's, five times higher than Australia's, seven times higher than Japan's, almost eight times higher than Vietnam's. Those are striking statistics, Don, and this poor comparison to other nations was true well before the COVID pandemic. We rank low among nations, 30th or 40th in life expectancy and infant mortality, for example. These are all clear signs that something isn't quite right with the way the U.S. approaches health. Others do a lot better and at much lower cost. And yet so many of us still believe that our system is the best against the evidence that's clear. And that's one way to question that belief, Kater, with facts. Let's look at other wealthy countries. How are they doing? How do they handle healthcare? What does the evidence say? Our guest today is one of the best qualified healthcare leaders in the world. Help us turn on the lights on how we stack up to at least one other country. In this case, it's Scotland. And our guest is the National Clinical Director of the Scottish National Health Service, Dr. Jason Leach. Jason has been helping Scotland navigate throughout the pandemic. He is also, we are both proud to say, a senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Jason, welcome to Turn On The Lights. We're thrilled to have you here. We've been collaborating with you for many years now, both Don and I, and it's just a real pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. I like nothing better than talking about Scotland and myself. So what better (laughs) place could I spend an hour? Indeed. To that point, Jason, maybe we can have you start with a little bit of a description of you. What is this? What does it mean to be the National Clinical Director of Scotland? That seems like a pretty exciting title. Well, I'm a middle-aged, aging uh, oral surgeon. I started out as a dentist a long time ago in the early 90s, then did oral surgery. So above your neck and below your eyes was really where we learned to operate. So from cancer through wisdom teeth, etc. I then had the privilege of coming to IHI, a pretty seminal moment in my career, to spare Professor Berwick's blushes. I did public health there, little knowing that there would be a pandemic 20 years later. And I also did change and improvement there, which is what you would expect to do at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Came back, worked for the government with some friends of ours, mutual friends of ours, ran a thing called the Safety Programme across Scotland. Long story short, then became the National Clinical Director. And it is one of three senior clinical advisors to the government of Scotland, principally to the politicians. So we have a first minister, we have a cabinet, we have a health secretary, exactly as you would expect, but also a set of senior civil servants who are not, as in America, associated with the politicians. They are independently appointed. And I advise them along with the chief medical officer and the chief nurse. So in broad terms, I'm responsible for the quality of the health and social care system and the change and improvement of the health and social care system, as if one person could ever have that agenda. Of course, there are thousands of people, which is one of the things I'm sure will come to. So Jason, we'll ask more in a minute about the how Scotland organizes its healthcare. We want to use part of the 
podcast, Turn on the Lights, to open the eyes of Americans to how healthcare is done in other countries and what the relative performance of. So let me just put the question. You have now seen both countries. You lived in the U.S., as you said, when you were a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Boston, and you've been back many times. You are a senior leader in Scotland right now. Which country is better when it comes to health and healthcare? What do you think? I think it's a more complex question than the binary one you perhaps are seeking, although I know you both know that. I think there are, if I showed you the Commonwealth Fund's chart, so the Commonwealth Fund is a not-for-profit in DC that compares healthcare systems. It's one of the few that does it, in fact. And it takes the US system, compares it with the Canadian, the German. Usually it lumps the UK together. We'll come to why that's inappropriate, I think, probably shortly. French, etc. When you can help, the UK is not just one country, just to be clear. And you know that full well. There are four national health services, NHSs. So listeners here will have heard of the NHS. And if you learn nothing else from the Turn on the Lights podcast, it is you're never allowed to say the NHS ever again in your whole life because there is no such thing. There are four very distinct versions. If you have a Welsh man or lady on or a Northern Irish man or lady on, they will tell you the same thing. So, so the Commonwealth Fund puts the United Kingdom, the broad healthcare system of the United Kingdom, at the top of that league table every year for person-centered care, for quality of care, for mortality, pretty much everything. The only thing we don't do so well, and it's the caricature of publicly funded health systems, is you wait. So our, we never quite reach the top of the chart that says wait. So I think we are the best in the world at some things, arguably. That would involve some high-end healthcare, but also the quality and safety of our delivery system. I think your principal challenge when you put America on those league tables is your variation. You have such startling variation. I have seen some of the best healthcare in the world in Cincinnati Children's Hospital, in Salt Lake City, in Boston, and I've also seen some of the poorest developed world healthcare in the world and the worst provision of health care to the population. No, I don't mean individual doctors providing bad care to individuals broadly across your whole population. And I think that's your challenge because I think if you just took the clinic, the Mayo Clinic, the Cincinnati Children's, you would probably be at the top of those league tables. The difficulty is you've got to do it for hundreds of millions of people. So Jason, how does that happen? I mean, why would you say that the variation that takes place in the United States happens the way it does? And how has Scotland, for example, eliminated that kind of variation across. You guys have a sizable population as well. How does Scotland work the variation out of the system while the U.S. has it in the way that you just described? Well, it's important to define what variation is. So in that brief conversation, they have variation of what Americans would call coverage. But you're the only country in the world that talks about coverage. No, nobody else understands that noun in terms of health and social care. If I went to the population of Scotland and said, do you understand universal coverage of healthcare? They'd think I was absolutely crazy. By which you mean what, Jason? So you mean that people assume that they're covered in Scotland? That's, is that what you mean by that? Or that if they have a sickness, if they have some kind of problem with their health, that they're going to have their costs covered? Is that what you mean? They don't even think about it. In 1949, post-war, a series of labor politicians at the time, introduced two things that completely revolutionized the way the UK helped people in inverted commas. The first was the Beverage Commission, which provided our social security system, which is a revolutionary 
concept at the time. And the second is a Nyron Bevan, a Welsh Labour politician who invented the publicly funded free at the point of delivery health system across the whole population of the four countries of the United Kingdom. At that time, a combined health system, in fact, across the four countries. So to put that in perspective, we have full and free tax-funded, not free completely, tax-funded healthcare through primary care and a gatekeeper system from that primary care system. So if you see a family physician, what I would call a general practitioner, they then refer you to hospital for your specialist care. You cannot, for example, and this is one of the reasons why it feels weird in your system, I cannot go to an orthopedic surgeon. It is impossible unless I have been through my primary care physician. So we have a traditional gatekeeper system where I go to my GP for free, other than my taxes I've paid on my salary, of course, and he or she will then do the primary care thing, often stopping any need for anything else. But if I need a hip replacement or I need a cataract or I need mental health services, I will then be referred on to whatever that system is. The same exists in dentistry. The whole population is registered with a primary care dentist and dentistry then feeds that through the system to, uh, to other bits of the puzzle. J Jason, so skeptics here about socialized medicine like you, you have there, I guess, is what we'd say in the US. Say, yeah, sure, it's covered, but you can't get the care. People are on waiting lists forever. There's rationing. So if you're like over 65, you'll never get your kidney transplant and people die on the waiting on these waiting lists. You've probably heard that. What's the truth? Well, the truth is that some of that argument is fair. Much of it is not. Let's not pretend that's not happening in the US. That, that is happening in the US. You're just choosing to do it in a slightly different way. What we are doing is we are evening that out across the whole population. So let, there's a couple of contextual things you need to understand, particularly with the difference between English or London healthcare and the rest of the country. You can, in the United Kingdom, buy healthcare. That is possible. There are a small number of people who have insurance, often through their business, their company, and some people pay out of pocket. In, it, in England, London in particular, that's about 20% of healthcare provision. In Scotland, it's less than 1%. We have no private delivery. Oh, nobody buys their healthcare in Scotland. A few very wealthy individuals or people who are waiting for something very specific might, but it's minuscule in terms of the overall provision. So therefore, if you're a millionaire or you're homeless, you join the same waiting. That's revolutionary. Now, you can decide if that's the right thing to do for a country or not. That might be up to your value system. Now, for many years, the caricature of waiting too long in Scotland's healthcare system was unfair. But to be fair now and honest, post-COVID, it is fair. People are waiting too long. But that's true in every developed country in the world. And it's just a matter of how you choose to do it. You can't buy your way out of our waiting list by going here or paying it to get there. What about rationing? So I'm in my 70s. If I wanted a kidney failure, could I get a kidney transplant there? Or am I told, nope, you're too old, you can't get it? Well, I would have a very good look at who you were. For... No, I wouldn't at all. I'm teasing. The provision is guideline and evidence-based. So there's no suggestion at any age that anything is off the table or on the table. But sometimes care is inappropriate in your 30s. Sometimes it's inappropriate in your 80s. And we have very robust systems of evidence-based guidelines that say what you can get and what you can't. Now, for the vast majority of care, that, that's 
fine. Dialysis at any age, hip replacements in your 90s, if that's the appropriate thing for you, your family and the healthcare provider in conversation, of course, fully consented. At the extreme end, and this is what perhaps gets the press around the world and in the US, we make choices about which cancer medicines to prescribe on the National Health Service. So we have expert groups of clinicians, of patient groups, of healthcare finance experts that say there's a shiny new medicine that the company says will save six weeks of life for X number of kidney cancer patients. And that expert group, not political, not connected to the politicians, they decide whether that will be provided on the UK's National Health Services. England has a version of that called NICE. Scotland has a version of that called the Scottish Medicines Consortium. So you can find examples where Scotland will say, that drug is available, we are not providing it. That's usually based on the fact the drug is probably not as good as it's being suggested it is. So we use clinical experts with patient groups, we're not doing that independent of patients and families, to make those choices for the whole population. Yeah. Now, again, you can't buy your way out of that, which is what you can do in the States. So the, the, our homeless friend in Boston wouldn't be able to get that new cancer drug in the US, but you could probably buy your way into that cancer drug in the US. We choose not to allow that. There's a provision in recent new health law here in the US that is for the first time going to allow Medicare, which is our biggest way of covering healthcare for people over the age of 65. It's a provision in that bill that actually allows Medicare for the first time Don, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but since you ran the place at one time, but it's for the first time that Medicare can actually negotiate prices on a handful of medicines, it's 10, not more than 10 to begin with, and incrementally going up on that. But that's the first evidence, Jason, of the US doing something similar to what you're describing in Scotland doing that's out there right now. So it's, it, we're starting, I think, because of the pricing of medications being in some cases, as outrageous as it is, there's finally a movement here that's bipartisan to try to actually control some of these drug costs, which is pretty exciting for us. Use the money for other things, whether you want to build a library or provide dialysis to the 92-year-old who could have another five years of life. Whatever you, let's not pretend there are not choices in all of the health and social care systems of the world. It's just how you decide to make those choices. And we choose to make those choices from an evidence-based perspective. So, so what about costs? So how much does care cost where you are compared to where we are? About half. And again, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, you you two are much more expert in this than me. But the last time I looked at, so the way the world, the geek and nerdy world decides what the number is for healthcare is we look at the gross domestic product of the nation. And then we work out what percentage of that gross domestic product is spent on health and care. And the European average for ease of understanding is about 10%. The European averages, it varies. So some people are nine, some people are 11. France is now the highest, 11, 11 and a half. The UK has been inside the pack for the last 30 years. And we're probably a little bit low presently. We're probably just below 10. But let's say for the sake of this argument, we spend 10% of our gross domestic product on health and care of the population. Now, we would argue we probably need a little bit more, but healthcare will consume all the money you give it. And you've got to be, you've got to be careful in asking for more. East Wheaton... Denmark, they spend about the same. You spend 19. Last time I looked, you spent 19%. I don't know if that's still true. And 9%, you spend 10 public money, three at the point of delivery. You spend nine on private admin and extra costs on top of what you already spend 
in your public money. That's the last time I looked at your chart, that may or may not still be true. So about double what you spend right now, but you said something else, which I think is very interesting. And I wonder if you could comment on this, Jason. It's health and care. I don't know what is included in care, but you distinguish those two, health and care. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about how Scotland considers social services and how integrated social care is with healthcare in in your environment. So I think that's another aspect of your system that's quite different than what we do here. It's more complex and it's quite difficult to explain quickly. So if you really wanted to study, you'd have to go to the Scottish government websites and go to Scottish care. We don't want to do that. We want to invite them. No. So I'm, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the summary quickly, but social care, and let's define that as care homes and care at home principally. Principal, Jason, what's a care home? We don't use that term. A care home would be an assisted living facility of some description that you would have. Ranging, ranging from, you know, okay, back. Yeah, ranging from somebody who checks you up out your bed in the morning and then leaves you alone to a locked dementia unit for your own safety with people providing your three meals and tucking you into bed at night. Everything in between. Right. So that would be what we would call a care home. And care at home would be that same thing, but provided in your own premise. And that might be care workers coming in three, four times a day. It might be somebody making your meals. It might be your meals being delivered. Well, and every variation of sorts. Now, in, in Scotland, that is a mixed market. So some of that is privately provided. Much of it is government provided, either central government or local government. So we have two layers of government. One is the big centre in Edinburgh, the parliament. The, dev- the, the I work for that runs the health system and some of the care system. And then we have 32 local governments who provide regional services like collecting your rubbish, fixing your potholes, educating your children, and also providing the social care for your elderly population and also your learning disabled children. So Jason, just to be clear about this, for at least some subset of the population, nursing home or care home care would be provided through public resource? At least some voice? Yes, but not completely free unless okay. you are poor. So now you, poor poor is a, an objective word that isn't particularly helpful here, but it is means tested. So your social care provision is means tested up to a level. So if you have money in the bank, we will take that money from your bank to pay for your social care until it reaches a level and then we will provide it for free. Okay. And social care can also be topped up. So you can effectively get a nicer environment or the social care unit of your choice by paying. We're trying to integrate that with healthcare. And that's why you hear me never just say healthcare. That's why I constantly describe myself as the clinical director for health and social care, because we are attempting, as they are across the rest of the UK and much of Europe, to integrate those two things, not just at the point of delivery, but also in the governance and management. So bank accounts, terms and conditions of the staff, the uniforms everybody wears, they integrate it. Right. And we are inventing a thing called the National Care Service to go alongside the National Health Service to have the same authority, the same level as the National Health Service. And I, that's a big challenge. No country, no country in the world. Japan, Singapore, maybe are the closest, but no one else has managed to. But Jason, on that direction, I had the chance to visit you in Scotland on many delightful occasions. And you have shown me some stuff that you appear to be doing, you as National Clinical Director and then Scottish National Health Service, way away, far away from hospitals and the offices. You've taken me to a prison where you're running a program to help prisoners get ready to re-enter communities. You've shown me an extremely interesting program in helping children in the early years of their lives 
start to thrive. Can you see a little more about these projects and programs? Are they actually running from the National Health Service? They are in partnership, of course, with the providers of whichever service it is. So we learned quite a lot about human systems change, about how you do change inside the health system. So we eradicated healthcare-associated infections, for example. We were the first country in the world to basically get rid of infections you could catch in hospital. And we did that using change and improvement methods that have been established and taught by your organization for many years. You said get rid of infections that you get in hospitals, get rid of them? Yes. So we have got, the public will have heard of a, a thing called Clostridium difficile that kills elderly people if they get it because you get horrible sickness and diarrhea. We had 37 elderly people die of it in a hospital in the early 2000s. And that was a catalyst for radical change. And we used relatively simple bundles of everyday care based on evidence to get rid of C. difficile. And you now have to work quite hard in Scotland to get a C. difficile infection. It's not impossible, of course. Healthcare is complex. It is not linear. It often is enormously difficult to manage populations. So you still get it. But in the main, you are now safe in Scotland's hospitals than you were, much safer than you were 15 years ago. So having learned that change method, let's call it, we then had other people who came literally to knock the door and say, we've been trying to do stuff for years and it doesn't seem to work. We've got this fancy menu of change about rehabilitation of offenders, about literacy in children. We can't get anybody to do what we say because their change method was send a letter to everybody and tell them to do the thing they had invented. And it turned out that didn't work. No, no surprise there. So we began to expand the use of that method, let's call it, into prison. So you saw a piece of work in Short's prison about dads, based on the very simple fact that if a dad keeps in touch with his kid while in prison, he is 10 times less likely to reoffend when he is released. 10 times. So if you keep the dad in touch with the kid, he feels a responsibility, he feels some assurance, he's some level still connected to family and outside. And when he comes out, he is much, much less likely to reoffend. The way you do that is you record bedtime stories for the kid. You allow the kid to visit the prison under certain conditions. You, so, you, so you establish a connection between dads as a group and kids as a group. And we ran the first, I'm not sure America has this. Do you have pantomimes in America? Don't think so. Pantomimes are Christmas plays. Ah. They're funny, interactive Christmas plays. It's a massive tradition. So all families go to the pantomime in their town each year. And we ran the first ever prison pantomime. So the kids could come and see the dads, hard men, proper hard men, performing ridiculous comic sketches for their children in the prison. Now, it's a- so I can't help you rough to hear. You are national clinical director. This is way out of your swim lane. What are you doing at your National Health Service working in prisons? What- is this considered health in Scotland? This seems so... Here, we debate rages in the U.S. about whether helping the homeless is part of the healthcare and of healthcare's obligation. You're doing something that's a few steps removed from that. How does this get considered? The argument is long historic in our country, and we've moved on. That, I, I should be careful. We haven't fixed this. I mean, let's be clear, I could take you along the streets of Glasgow, not far from where I am, and I could introduce you to some homeless people, and I could introduce you to the inequality between where I live and four miles up the road. There's still plenty to do, but the population at large and the public system and the private system, to be fair, 
has realised that health is not about institutions. It's not about hospitals and dialysis. It is partly, but it's much more about alcohol addiction, criminal justice, learning systems inside your education system, and how you do shopping and where the food is allocated, whether you have candy at the till or candy buried at the back of the store. All of that together is about health and care systems working together. And the prison example is just a neat example. It's kind of on the edge of where we are. We've got other pieces of work doing literacy, health and well-being in kids. We've got a, a relatively famous thing now called the Daily Mile, where every kid in Scotland's primary schools run a mile every day. Seems such a simple thing to do, but it reduces obesity. It increases better nutritional choices, not only in kids. The amazing thing in the research is the teachers do it too. So the teachers get thinner and make better nutritional choices because they run every day with the kid. They've got to chase after them, I guess, on some level. But Jason, you've been in a messenger for the country really throughout the pandemic, but you've You've been, in some ways, the face, I don't know if there's such a way of describing this, but the face or at least the voice of the government, a voice of reassurance during the pandemic, I think during a really challenging time. I wonder, is there a story from the last few years from the pandemic that you think that's going to be, that's going to stay with you for years from now that you think holds lessons for all of us as we think about the future, as we move past this really challenging period? There are so many. Let me give you, let me give you two. One one is funny and one is not funny in the least. First is the slightly weird experience of fame. I walk along the street now and in Scotland, I'm recognized every time I go out because I literally was on the TV every day. I was on the billboards and the stations. It was insane from nowhere. And I, I meet people in the street and often young people are the ones with the courage to come up and speak to you. So I'm on the train or the bus and somebody will come up and say, are you Jason? It's nice to see you. And I get slightly concerned I'm going to get punched in the face because they were a business owner or something happened, but that hasn't happened yet. The next sentence they say, invariably, it's happened a hundred times. The next sentence they say is, my granny thinks you're great. So the over 75-year-old women of Scotland absolutely love me. <laughs> but anybody who owned a business or had to homeschool their kids, they're not quite so sure. So that that's my first slightly tongue-in-cheek story. There was actually cushions with my face on them sold at Christmas to elderly women. And they, <laughs> apparently, they did, apparently they did well. I made no money out of it. My second story is a bit tougher. So quite early on in the pandemic, I went to visit one of our hospitals. One of my one of my jobs was to try and be out about. And I went to bus companies and I went to restaurants and I went to all kinds of places to try and understand what the pandemic was doing so we could give better advice. Of course. So I went to a big hospital in the centre of Scotland and I went to infectious diseases on a tour. And I it was exactly as you would expect. But I met a healthcare assistant, a young lady who was entry-level healthcare worker, not nursing qualified healthcare assistant, getting paid not very much to do an incredibly difficult job. And she was a lovely young lady, just in her early 20s. And she said she'd been there for three years. So she'd been there for two and a half years pre-COVID, and then she'd seen the first wave. In her two and a half years of infectious disease inpatient care, she'd never seen anybody die. Not a single death in infectious diseases, because it turns out we're really good at infectious disease. People don't die of it anymore in, in, in the Western world. In the first six months, she'd seen 19 deaths a week. 19 deaths a week. And she started to cry as she was telling me this. And we, her job was to take me to my next appointment. So we were, I was going to speak to an all-staff event in the canteen to, to meet all the people. And I looked at her and she was really upset. And I was empathetic and said, I'm so sorry, this is so hard. Are you going to leave? You Surely you can't 
carry on. And through the tears, I swear this is true, through the tears, she said, no, I'm going to be a nurse. And she had applied to be a nurse and had just been accepted into a university course where she'd be able to keep her job in the hospital to provide her some funding, but also train to be a nurse at the same time. So inside the horror of what she had experienced, what many had experienced, she had seen angels, for lack of a better description, who had helped people die with dignity, who had helped families stay connected, who had done their best, and she wanted to be part of that army of carers for the future. And she's now in her third year of her nurse training. I think my lesson, and it continues now, even this week in the hospital I was in, was the workforce. This pandemic did not only affect the whole population, it had a very specific traumatic effect on the key workers in our country. Jason, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I want to go back to the, what I'll call the American view of the non-American healthcare system. You're claiming that yours performs pretty darn well from what you're talking about. One, one common American assertion, some places, is that you're mooching or that the other systems are less expensive because you wait for us to innovate. We're inventing the new drugs and the new systems. And then, so we put all that money in and you take it and use it. What do you think? I think it's bunkum. Is that a word that's recognized in, in the U.S.? It is. Yes. It's a we have word. five of the top 10 performing universities in the world in the United Kingdom, three of which are Scottish. We have some of the best innovators. We have some of the best research. And COVID proved that actually to do innovation properly, you need to do it globally. So we wouldn't have a vaccine if we didn't have Turkish researchers in France working on mRNA vaccines to save at least 29,000 people in Scotland and many millions across the whole world. So I think the US is at the forefront of that innovation, particularly of kits and drugs. But I'll come to why that's not the only important thing in a moment. You cannot innovate your way out of some of the challenges we face. We don't have an inequality across Scotland or an inequality of provision across the US because we don't have the fancy new cardiology drug. By all means, build the fancy new cardiology drug. I would quite like it when I require it. But actually what we need to do is provide care to those who need it with the evidence we already have. We know for certain that if you give people who have had a stroke aspirin for the rest of their lives, you will stop them having a further stroke in rough terms. We only give it to 50% of the people who have had a previous stroke because our systems don't allow us to give the cheapest medicine available in the whole world to 50% of the population who require it. That's not an invention or an innovation problem. That's an implementation problem. And Scotland has that. America has that. Sweden has that. And we have learned how to recover some of that. But America has probably deeper problems with that implementation than most other health and care systems. Forgive me for saying It's interesting that you bring this implementation problem up towards the end of our time here, but I recently, in preparation for a talk I was giving, reviewed the NIH budget, the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. 97% of the NIH's budget is spent on creating new things, really important work, creating new drugs, new medicines, new diagnostic technologies, et cetera. Only 3% of their whole budget, $42 billion, $45 billion, is spent on making sure that the fruits of all that effort on the research side actually get to people in clinical care environments. There's almost no research on what you're describing, implementation or supporting that translation. Jason, we're almost- I, done. Can I defend Scotland and tell you a book to read? You need to read a book called Why the Scots Invented the World. Pretty much everything Scotland <laughs> invented. The roads you ride on, the phone you speak on, the TV you watch, the MRI scanner you use for diagnosis, 
the hypodermic syringe, I could go on and on. All Scottish. One thing that we should do, among many that you've suggested, let me ask you this one question that we ask all of our guests, Jason, as we try to close out here. You've seen so much, both of our US system, Scotland system, during the pandemic, obviously before, and you'll see it after. Are you? Do you feel optimistic about our future or, or pessimistic about our future? What's your view of the future? I'm hopeful. I know no other way. And I think, actually, to take the story full circle, I think we are better together than apart. Whether that's the US and the UK working together, whether it's the Swedes and the Danes, we just had the Swedes come visit. I'm about to go and see the Swiss health system in the next couple of weeks. So there are solutions. What we have to do is stop being parochial and accept that the Canadians might actually have something to teach us and the Americans might have something to teach us and vice versa. So so I think if, if we did that all together and the vaccines, and there are other examples around the world of how to do that, we eradicated intensive care infection because a man called Terry Clemmer had done it in Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City. He did it first. He was the first to eradicate infection in intensive care. And we stole him to come to Scotland and teach us how to do it. So that exists all over the place, in primary care, in social care. There isn't a solution that isn't already available. What we need to do is convene and get better at sharing those around the world, I think. That makes me hopeful, kiddo. A global learning environment. Thank you, Jason. We really appreciate your time to get today on Turn on the Lights. You've shared a lot with us and we uh, hope to someday have you back again. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. Wow. Well, that was exciting, Doug. What'd you, what'd you make of what Jason had to say? It's always fun listening to Jason. I've got two or three kind of things that strike me in no particular order. First, in Scotland, because you have a national clinical director and policy behind them, buck stops somewhere with things like- Someone's responsible. Yeah. Someone's responsible. You, you actually can tell who is responsible. Jason and his colleagues, they taking, they're extending their interest in taking responsibility for things like healthcare in the criminal justice system or the well-being of young children. But that sense that someone is in charge is an awfully uh, strong message and very different here. If you ask here, like, who in the United States is responsible for ending homelessness or responsible for seeing that an innovation that comes out of NIH actually gets to everybody. You actually can't think of the, the, can't There is no one. I don't think. Makes the decision for what medicine should get covered or not, or and to what extent. There's no single entity here that does that right now. Balkanized. Yeah, we have no minister of health. We have no clinical director. We have a surgeon general. We have CMS, but the buck doesn't seem to stop anywhere here. Diane's Scotland. The other thing is performance. Just the, I think there really is a mythology. I'm not sure we need to explore this further around the U.S. that we're the best and that these other systems, especially the national health service systems like in Scotland, they ration, they prohibit, they restrict. You can't get what you want. And I don't think that's generally true, certainly not by comparison to the kinds of restrictions we have in the U.S. And seems like this message is that this mistake is very durable in the u.s unless i'm missing something yeah he said i thought it was very interesting that his assessment is that there is variation everywhere and that we all ration to use a word that we often use here in describing their system but we all ration we just do it differently in some ways they we choose to ration care away from the poor, generally speaking, and the uninsured, and they do it differently. They just time their healthcare differently. There's waiting lists to some extent. And even that seemed overwrought, maybe more accounted now 
after the pandemic, but the mythology of it seemed overbuilt for in many ways. But I agree with it. It seemed different. If rationing means in behaving in such a way that someone can't get what they need. We definitely do that here, right? I, there's no question about that. Yeah, I think a heck of a lot more than certainly is going on. And right. I, the thing, one thing that struck me when he said is everyone is covered. And even into late in life when they need a care home. But like, I can't imagine what a relief that would be for everyone to not have to worry about going to a physician because they of a co-payment or because they're worried about a bill, because they're worried about their insurance company not covering something as you age or family members age, to not know where you might get care at home or in assisted living facilities because you don't have the money in your, in your bank account to afford it. They don't, people don't live with that in their consciousness there, it sounds like in Scotland, which is pretty incredible. And what a relief for people. My goodness. Yeah. It's so deeply embedded in the social contract there. It, it seems to be just assumed. In fact, I think he said that if you raised the question about coverage in Scotland, people wouldn't even know what you mean. Yeah. They, it wasn't in the lexicon. It wasn't in the lexicon. Yeah. They've got something we don't. And I just think you need to, we need to further inquire. Well, I think in other shows, hopefully with other countries, maybe we'll deepen our understanding of these kind of what's the underlying assumptions. So the question I leave with in a conversation with Jason is why don't Americans know this? What, 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 why this dense belief structure that we are just the best? And by the way, we are in some ways. I'm sure that a lot of advanced technologies do come from this country. I feel very lucky to, if you're, if you need advanced cardiac surgery, if you're in the right demographic in this country. Yeah. Uh, but overall, measured by results, uh-uh. That's just the other thing that struck me, and maybe this is a something for us to think about altering our mental model of what health means. It strikes me in what Jason had to say that the population there sees a connection between what how their grocery store is organized or the way in which kids do recess in Scotland, frankly, and run a mile with their teachers chasing them. <laughs> Apparently that old notion that help is something that we do every day. And then it's not just when we get sick and need to, to go to the hospital or go to a doctor, but in fact that, you know, that the scope of practice of healthcare is not limited to, I think he said, health is not just institutional. It's not just something that we get out of our clinics and our hospitals, but rather it's an everyday phenomenon. It's part of how we think of uh, every aspect of our lives, how we organize our towns, how we build our communities, how we figure out what goes in the front of the grocery store. Uh, I can't help commenting on, on, on the Daily Mile. I do know this thing has been pretty rather important to me. So I've been in Scotland around the Daily Mile. It started actually in a town called Stirling, Scotland, where it was actually a primary school principal, a head teacher, who noticed how much obesity was going on in, in that school in Stirling. And she decided to try to do something about it. She made a partnership with a physician in our community and with the National Health Service and eventually introduced this concept just in that school that every kid would run a mile every day, or if they couldn't run a mile, they'd run half a mile. And in any weather, and I visited that school, I watched the kids run and it became conventional. They nailed obesity. The obesity rates plummeted in the school. It became more widely known in Scotland. People like Jason picked it up. Now, I don't know if it's true that every kid in every school in Scotland today runs a mile a day, but a lot do. In fact, it's gone international, although not in the US. Only a few cities that I know have picked up on that idea. That's health. And it's such a simple idea. It doesn't cost anybody a nickel to solve a problem that costs people so much in health and well-being down, downstream. Kind of yeah, I talk, talk to the kids. They're more sophisticated public health officials than we have. 
a lot in the U.S. So I would ask, these were sixth grader kids, 11, 12-year-old kids who were running a mile. And so what's it like? And they said, oh, it's great. And they talk, actually, they didn't talk about obesity. They talked about the fun, but they also talked about the effect on their mental status. Told me the kids were saying, I'm sleeping better. I'm worrying less. We do it together. We have fun. It was, one of the kids was in a wheelchair. And the way they handle that is one kid pushes the kid in the wheelchair. And nice. Yeah. Experience. So yeah, there's a lot of good stuff that happened. And that came out of energy in the National Health Service. It's about health. Wow. Well, what an exciting conversation. Lots of lessons in there. I think changing our the way we think about health, frankly, and Having someone in charge seems like the kind of two ideas for what we might want to do differently here, uh, if ever given an opportunity. So, all right, Don, thank you. Thank you. I think uh, turn on the lights. We need global brains. Let's bring global brains to our thinking. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.